So hello and welcome to another episode of the HRW Shift podcast. I'm Katie Irving. I'm the Global Head of Behavioral Science here at HRW. And on this number 17 episode of the podcast, Why Do We Waste Our Free Time? I'm joined by two relatively new members of the HRW Shift team. So delighted to welcome them to the podcast and allow them to introduce themselves to our audience. So we'll start with Jeremy. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Katie. Um, yeah, I'm Jeremy Koloski, um, and I'm a behavioral science analyst uh, for the HRW Shift team based in the Manhattan office. So pretty much my background briefly is that uh, in my past life, I was a software engineer. And while I was working as a software engineer, I was reading and listening to a lot of pop psychology books like Malcolm Gladwell, Daniel Pink. And I really just got fascinated and fell in love with the topic. Uh, during that year. And I, I decided to just switch careers and do a master's in behavioral economics in London. And that's how I ended up here. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, it's really great to have you on the team and also to have you on the podcast. And also, it's my delight to welcome Alex to the podcast. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Katie. Hi, everyone. I'm Alexandra Petrakin. Uh, everyone calls me Alex. I've had a similar journey to Jeremy's. So I... Um, I'm a trained biologist. I did genetics and uh, then a PhD in neuroscience recently. And I've always been fascinated by the way the human mind and the brain just work. So after studying the physical aspects of the brain, I thought I'd switch careers and not study the, uh, the more intricate uh, aspects that affect us in our daily lives. So yeah, I'm very happy to be here as a behavioral science analyst as well. Welcome, Alex. It's great to have you on the team and great to have you both on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to uh, chatting on this podcast with you, Katie, and with you, Jeremy. And here we will take a look at the way we spend our free time, how we use social media, whether we always have to be productive with our activities, and whether social media networks have responsibilities towards their users. We will discuss behavioral science biases, such as effective forecasting, and we also focus on the happiness-leisure time puzzle. Jeremy, you came up with that term in your dissertation, and we will look at that later. But for now, I was wondering what you think about social media. So social media is kind of a social psychological experiment that no one really agreed to participate in because we all have these really addictive uh, platforms in front of us at, at every hour of the day. And uh, it's very, very difficult to choose not to engage in that and not to engage with other people. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, social media in general has this advertising model. And what that means is, is it tries to keep us on site for as long as possible, because the longer that we're on site, the more uh, advertising money it makes. So the real product of Facebook is not really the app per se, it's our attention. And if you've seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, it does a good job of exposing some of the tactics that Facebook employs to maximize our time on site. So the endless scroll function, the like button, the notifications are all examples of these. And Facebook will also often borrow the most addictive features from other social media apps. For example, uh, I don't know if you've realized, but uh, there's been a new real feature um, at the top of the newsfeed on Facebook, which autoplays short clips. And that seems pretty suspiciously similar to TikTok. I have noticed that. And I've also noticed that in my Facebook feed that I'm getting served lots of yeah videos that have some kind of correlation to maybe a group that I'm in or something that is something else that I've watched on Instagram which is also owned by Facebook 
but they are doing a lot more of serving little short videos to users, aren't they? Yeah, and if you've noticed, once those videos play, it's very difficult to not be engaged by them. They kind of just suck you in and demand your attention. Yeah, they autoplay the next one as well, or, or another serve you another video straight away. So there's not a real obvious attention break where you could consciously decide to do something else. Yeah, I thought at some point they might all become the same app because they all seem to be merged and quite a few of them are now owned by Facebook. Yeah, in the, in the dystopian future, that might be a real possibility. <laughs> I was wondering, um, Jeremy, why you think we go on Facebook so much and what are we looking for there? Oh, we're looking for so many different things. For one, just social connection. We're a social animal and we crave social connection. We also crave belonging and much of Facebook is about trying to get that feedback that you belong in a certain group. And there's also so much reputational management going on. You want likes, you want comments, uh, you know, you post a picture and you're just waiting for the next like, the next comment, uh, that flurry of notifications. Um, and I think that's really a large part of why we spend so much time on social media. I was wondering um, also how that compared to other activities that for some people might be very enriching, for example, reading a very good book or learning to play the guitar how the satisfaction compares. Um, and maybe Jeremy, if you'd like to tell us more about these different types of activities. So what we do on Facebook and how it, what effect it has on us versus what I said before, reading a book or learning a skill, if they're, if they're different. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, and it's the question that I delved into in my thesis. For my thesis, I kind of just talked about two broad types of activities. And the first one was flow activity and the other was passive activities. So passive activities, we already mentioned, that's scrolling through Facebook kind of mindlessly and waiting for um, information to um, act upon us. And flow activities is a very different kind of feeling, and that's more of an active engagement in an activity. So just to define what flow means, Flow uh, it usually occurs when you're so absorbed in an activity that your sense of self and your sense of time just seem to drop away. So a lot of people think of this as like being in the zone, like just think about working and getting in that zone. And then a few hours later, you, you look at a time and you're shocked by how much time has passed. A popular example that I like to use is uh, playing at tennis. When you play tennis, if you're playing uh, a match with an opponent who is far worse than you, then you're not challenged and you get pretty bored. Um, on the flip side, if you play with an opponent who is far better than you, uh, you end up anxiously chasing after shots and you also get pretty anxious and maybe even bored because you're not really engaged. So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who coined the term flow, wrote, enjoyment appears at the border of boredom and anxiety. And that's really what you're looking for in flow. You're looking for that spot. Uh, luckily for me, I had an identical twin brother to play tennis with growing up. So much of our time was, was spent just hitting the ball back and forth at a very similar skill level and being perfectly absorbed by the game and having a great time. So that's really what we think about when we say the flow state. For me, a flow activity is reading and a really big one is cycling because I just have to be in the moment. Otherwise, I, I would get run over. And there are ways to get better as well and still enjoy. There's no way I'm going to get bored because I can just bring it down to my level of skill and to the, the environment. What about you, Katie? Well, I think 
you know, hearing you describe that, Jeremy, I think we've all been able to relate to that in the work context. You know, there are just some tasks that really mentally challenge us, but not so much so that they're outside of our capabilities. And it's really in those types of tasks, maybe getting stuck into some deep analysis that I think we've all kind of felt that flow where you actually just, yeah, lose track of time and you're just deep in it and you're writing stuff and you're creating, you know, putting slides together or something um, and really enjoying it. I also find similar to you, Alex, a sense of flow in exercise. I like to do kind of weightlifting functional training exercise and find often a real kind of state of flow where I'm really being stretched, but not well beyond my capabilities. And it's definitely not boring. Definitely can relate to that. Jeremy, from your research, um, after we've seen how important flow activities are to us and how beneficial they are to us, uh, what do people say they prefer? The people that you interviewed, flow or passive activities? Yeah, well, that's a tricky one. Uh, when people are asked whether they would prefer to engage in flow activities or passive activities, they tend to say flow activities. So their explicit preferences are to spend more time engaging in flow activities. But in reality, people spend far more time engaging in passive activities. So researchers term that finding the happiness paradox. And in my thesis, I renamed it to the happiness leisure time puzzle, as you mentioned earlier. So that's really the question uh, is why don't people's actions align with their preferences? Why do people spend so much time engaging in passive activities, even though they say they prefer flow activities? That's something I can really relate to as well. I think we all probably have been there when you, for example, when you're on vacation and you find yourself scrolling on Instagram rather than, you know, enjoying the beautiful scenery that you rarely have access to or realizing that you haven't made very much progress on a chunky task that you planned, you know, a home project, for example, and realizing, oh, it's because I've actually spent quite a lot of time just passively scrolling through my newsfeed. It definitely relates. And, and I, I would agree with all of your survey participants, Jeremy, that if you ask me what I would rather spend my time doing, it would definitely be flow activities. Yeah, well, I studied this for my whole thesis and think about it constantly, and I still spend far more time on passive activities and flow activities. So even when you know about it, just like uh, many biases in psychology, even when you know about it, you know it's a problem, it's really hard to fix. Um, so why do you think we do this, Jeremy? Why do you think we prefer flow activities, but then end up spending so much time on passive activities? Yeah, that's a, a really hard question to answer, but I considered uh, multiple um, ideas in my thesis. So one possibility is it's a problem of affective forecasting. Uh, affective forecasting is a fancy name for our attempts to predict what our emotional responses will be to future events. So it turns out we're not actually very good at this. Uh, one bias we often fall prey to is called the impact bias. And that's that we think positive and negative events will have stronger, longer term and more far reaching impacts than they actually do. For example, we think a breakup will torment us forever and a hookup will keep us forever in bliss. Uh, when it comes to leisure time, people predict that passive activities will be more enjoyable and restorative than they actually are. And they underestimate how enjoyable flow activities will be in the present and how satisfying they'll be in retrospect. So that's one possibility. And then another option is that it's simply a, a failure of willpower. So we want to engage in flow activities, but when the time comes, the cost of initiating that flow activity is just too high. Yeah, and that willpower is an interesting one, isn't it? Because it really varies 
the amount of willpower that we have varies over time and it depends whether we've eaten or whether we've slept well and our kind of ability to quote resist these types of temptations really varies from time to time and even when we have spare time available we might be more vulnerable to lapses in willpower and i think it also depends how we identify with this uh with these activities for example if let's say we go on instagram to message someone and we tell ourselves oh i'm only doing that you know stay in touch with people or oh it's my free time so a way to relax is to look at pretty pictures that my friends have shared but then we end up down this rabbit hole and then our brain associates every time we open instagram i associate with oh it's relaxing time you deserve this you've earned it i also really resonate with what you were saying about effective forecasting i think that's really fascinating and i think that's absolutely spot on and i think probably one of the most likely explanations for this phenomenon because you're so right about people's inability to really um, recognize the emotional magnitude of positive and negative events. Again, I can I can completely relate to the idea of, oh, I'm on vacation, let me just scroll for a little bit and, and also identify with what you were saying, Alex, about how you think, oh, this will be a really nice event and I'll just catch up with some friends or see what kind of pictures people have been posting. And then, you know, minutes, hours later, <laughs> you're still there. And actually the emotional benefit of that is really, really minuscule, especially again, if you're, if your alternative might've been something that will give you longer term pleasure. Um, and another uh, theory that I considered for why we tend to spend far more time at passive activities than flow activities is construal level theory. Uh, and I, I really think that's a fascinating theory for me it's almost like psychology's theory of everything because it underlies so much of what we do our memory prediction speculation perspective taking pretty much all of that stuff it underlies uh, i think it might be a little bit too complex for this podcast but uh, it's really fascinating and i think it, it does have a lot to do with with how we spend our time Maybe we can do another podcast on construal level theory sometime in the future, Jeremy. We can figure out a way to boil it down to half an hour. Sounds like a great idea to me. I'd be up for that. What then can we do to overcome this uh, sort of inaccuracy in our thinking and what we do, this inconsistency, and to use our leisure time more productively? For example, what do you, what do, you do? What are your go-to um, strategies in, for using leisure time productively, Katie and Jeremy? Uh, so one, I think one of the biggest barriers to using free time productively is that feeling that we just don't have enough time to spend on flow activities. So sometimes it feels like we have small slices of time interspersed throughout the day. And some people have called this time confetti. Uh, and it may feel like a losing battle to try to squeeze a flow activity into those brief periods. Uh, so to counter that, we can try to carve out periods of time that are dedicated exclusively to flow activities. And I think another barrier is what I like to call the work-play dichotomy. If think of the phrase, work hard, play hard. So a lot of people feel like they've spent all day at work and therefore time after work should be relaxing and enjoyable. Um, an idea that they should spend their hours on more taxing activities feels anathema to them. I definitely understand that perspective and I felt it myself, but in the long run, it's ultimately self-defeating. So I think it's helpful to see free time as a time to relax, but also as an opportunity to develop and refine skills that are otherwise neglected. I really like that. And I think that's a nice way of thinking about it, especially recognizing that often 
flow activities can really have a lot of resounding benefits that are going to um, keep sustaining your mental well-being and that we might recognize we actually have more energy for those type of activities than we believe at the outset. I think that sounds sounds really smart, but it is so difficult psychologically to think, oh, I'm going to spend these 10 minutes that I have between things on reading or starting what feels like maybe a bigger flow type task. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really tough. I think one fix that I've actually employed was inspired by that, the book, The Habit Loop by Charles Duhigg. And that idea is to try to substitute bad habits with good habits. So every time I feel the impulse to check Facebook, I'll instead open up my vocabulary app or my Duolingo app and do something productive with that time. That's nice. I also have picked up a kind of technique to try and deal with these impulses myself, which is temptation bundling, which is trying to only allow yourself to do the activity when you're doing something more worthwhile. So if you have the impulse to kind of scroll through social media, to only do it, you know, for example, while you're on your commute, so you're already doing something that's quote worthwhile or um, only listening to a trashy novel while cleaning the house. Um, so only really allowing yourself to do the kind of more passive activities when doing some other behavior that's a bit more worthwhile. It limits the, the impulse in a similar way. I quite like that, Katie, and it reminded me of uh, listening to uh, Spanish music while uh, doing the dishes. Um, but on what you said, Jeremy, about um, opening Duolingo apps or more productive apps rather than opening social media, I started doing that as well. I was thinking about when I was in school, when I was younger, and I had so much time to do everything. And I was reading lots and doing homework and doing school and all sorts of, you know, extracurricular activities. And I realized that nowadays I don't have that time because maybe I spend an hour or two a day on social media. So then I, based on that, I try to find every, you know, every 10, 15 minutes, I think, oh, I could do a lesson on Portuguese or I could do something useful even if it's tidying my room or reading a few pages. I picked up a, a really good tip. Um, it was on through a, you know the magazine Wired to do a, a podcast called The Gadget Lab where they talk about new technological developments and they were talking about this challenge generally of people overusing social media or spending more time than they intended to on social media and one of the solutions that they recommended is to contemplate your own mortality which I actually find a really useful strategy because you're right. Like, is this how you want to spend your precious one life on planet earth, you know, sitting and staring at, at a small screen? No. <laughs> so just imagining, imagining your finite life is a useful, albeit quite morbid way of limiting social media use. Yeah, I really like that idea of spending our precious time uh, in, in, a good, in a good way. And I was actually wondering, because I've only started spending time on social media recently in the past year or two years, and I was wondering what it was that made me all of a sudden just spend so much time on it, rather than using my, my time productively. And then I thought, do I need to always use my leisure time productively? Should I feel bad that I didn't learn X amount of words in a foreign language today? But then I, you know, I looked at the new puppy my friend got. What do you think? So yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think it's important to mention everyone has a different definition of productive. And I would never argue that we need to be hyperproductive and squeeze every last drop of productivity out of, out of our waking hours. But um, as Katie said, most people want to capitalize on their potential 
and be the best versions of themselves. So from an existential point of view, when you're thinking of mortality, when you're thinking about how you would look back at your life at an old age, you don't want to think that you spent most of your free time scrolling mindlessly through Facebook. You want to feel like you made good use of that time. So for me, productivity means that in one way or another, you're working towards that ideal version of yourself. So something like meditation, which may not seem productive in itself, can be productive if it helps us with our focus or our emotional regulation. And something like even being social uh, on its face, it doesn't seem especially productive, but it can make us more socially apt and generally happier people, which is obviously something we all want. Yeah, I really agree. Taking that energy and gearing it towards relationships or working on ourselves in a way that is not immediate, doesn't offer immediate feedback. Like you said, meditation, I think it's a very big one because we might we might see an immediate um, reward. We might feel better that day, but also over time, if we do that repeatedly, it might be even better. It's very cumulative and it might help with other tasks and so on. Yeah, and I think getting back to not necessarily effective forecasting, i.e. not just thinking about how we're going to feel in the future, but I think we also are often bad statisticians about how much we can cumulatively achieve when we break it down into small amounts. And I absolutely agree with you, Jeremy, that it's not to say that we need to be learning new words in Portuguese, Alex, to, in every spare second of our of our free time. Sometimes mentally just giving yourself a bit of a break, whether it's just listening to some music or or scrolling mindlessly through through a feed can be kind of what you need, but it's more just whether we're allowing ourselves to make those conscious choices about this being the thing that I need, the thing that I need right now that will help me work towards being my best self. And coming back to what I was saying about being bad statisticians about how much small minor improvements can accumulate to over time. If we are learning, you know, even five, five words a day or one word a day, then over the course of a year, we're learning 365 new words in a language, which is a heck of a lot. So also helping us kind of recognize how much even small moments of flow can benefit us emotionally and achievement-wise. I agree with you, Katie, about the small moments. And also, I think about not necessarily having specific purposes. I don't think we need to define specific targets. Oh, I want to learn five words today or paint something today. Um, I have this app that's called Habitica, where you work to build habits. And it's like, it's a gamified sort of productivity app. So you can grow dragons and things like that. And you can fight your chores. And one of the things I have, a few of the things I have put down are read or draw or write something. So either one of those, something that allows me to sort of, in a way, get in touch with my you know thoughts and so on. I just take it off at the end of the day or do some form of exercise for 10 minutes. So again, it's not specific targets. I want to lift more today. It's more do something beneficial for me one way or another. Yeah, I think those gamified productivity apps could be extremely beneficial. And as to what Katie said, uh, yeah, people have a really difficult time thinking about cumulative compounding or exponential growth over extended periods of time. Um, and that's one of the reasons reasons, they don't realize that flow activities by their nature progress and lead to even more complex experiences while passive activities kind of just remain static. So it's, it doesn't really build to anything. It's more of a bridge to nowhere. I was uh, curious about something from your experiences with your, your families, with your friends, your acquaintances, whether you think different generations might see leisure time differently. Because I look at my parents and for them, leisure time is doing something in the garden or something that to me is productive. 
or decorating the house. And to me, leisure time might be watching something or uh, reading a fantasy book, which are, which are different things. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I do know that younger generations tend to spend much of their leisure time on screens. So the stats of how much time te- teenagers spend in front of screens are pretty shocking. According to Common Sense Media, Americans spend an average of nine hours a day in front of screens. Um, so if you've heard of Jean Twenge, who wrote uh, the, the famous book, iGen, she's done a lot of fascinating work on this phenomenon. And uh, yeah, she labeled an, an entire generation iGen after the iPhone. Do you think it could be something related to the fact that teenagers were born in a world like this that constantly pulls at their attention span and their screens everywhere? And, and you can do most things on the screen and you have to do most things on the screen. Sometimes while older generations grew up maybe without a phone or, uh, you know, not, with a phone that wasn't so versatile. I think that's a huge part of it. I, I honestly can't even imagine growing up with a smartphone like teenagers now have. Like for me, I didn't get a smartphone till I was till late in high school. The thought of every time I had free time when I was younger, just turning to my smartphone is uh, difficult for me to fathom. I was always playing with my siblings, uh, outdoor activities. I think if you grow up in an environment like that, it's very, very difficult to choose to spend your time in less immediately gratifying activities. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there is also maybe another side to that, though, as well, that the younger generations who've grown up in this environment become much more savvy at navigating, well, navigating the kind of tools and techniques that social media networks um, institute to keep people keep people's attention. Again, I don't know. There's a lot of research on how it's affected younger generations, but I also see the the flip side of it in that my parents and the older generation often are less cynical about the role of social networks and are, are more easily kind of more easily sucked into paying attention to social media and spending hours scrolling. I can often recognize after I put up a post about something, it'll be my my mother-in-law and my dad who <laughs> like it within, with, well, within 24 hours, sometimes within minutes of it going up. So I, I do also think that there, there's a degree of kind of savviness that maybe generations raised with screens may have about the role of social media, although it's certainly more embedded in their lives and social networks, in real life social networks than for the older generation. But I do think sometimes the older generation have it as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Just uh, my own, from my own experience on one side, my grandmother is completely tech literate. She has no idea how to use Facebook or any of those apps. And on the other side, my grandma is on Facebook and very active. And I think it's really her main form of staying in touch with her family. So when that's your main avenue of staying in touch, uh, you have to think you'd be spending a lot of time on those apps. And the other, the other thing that I often think about when, whenever I'm thinking about social media, and I think they talked about this in some of the documentaries about social media, but that the other thing that's important to remember when we think about our relationship with social media is that we are only one individual human brain against all of the power of some of the world's most elite minds trying to hold on to your attention. You know, these social media companies have recruited some of the best and brightest people and commissioned or invented the the most powerful technology that they can to hold our attention. And so we're really outnumbered when we think about um, trying to reduce the amount of engagement that we have with social media. 
And as for a some sort of warning like alcohol limits, that I think that could be helpful in terms of passive consumption, passive scrolling, because people have a great notion of how much time they're spending on these apps. If you ask them how much time, they could say an hour when it's really been three, four hours. They have, we have, don't have a good intuition for that. So some sort of warning, like you've been spending one hour scrolling, it's time to take a break, would be helpful. But there's the question of incentives. Why would Facebook or any other social media company be interested in curbing your engagement really they want more and more so that's really the question for me there's a button uh, there's an option on instagram where you can put it set a timer so it tells you after 10 minutes 15 minutes one hour and, and more i think whether you uh, you spend that amount of time um, and you can just ignore it <laughs> so, or you can abide by it we'll be talking more about whether social media should come up with a warning like like you said, similar to alcohol uh, intake in our next, next podcast, actually, where um, behavioral scientist Rhiannon Phillips will be addressing this question, the question of whether social media actually is good or bad for its users. For now, I was wondering, uh, what are your plans for your uh, next pocket? So leisure time. Well, I, I must say I'm really inspired to hear about your um, about your research, Jeremy, because I think this has really illuminated how how important it is to kind of disassociate from social media because it sits in as a substitute for more worthwhile, more fulfilling flow activities. So in my next um, bit of leisure time, I will spend it, I'm, I'm reading a really interesting book on the Beatles, so I'll, I'll read my book rather than scroll on social media. Oh, nice. I love the Beatles. <laughs> What's that book called? It's called um, One, Two, Three, Four by Craig Brown. It's a really great investigation of some of the untold stories of people surrounding the Beatles during their career. Cool. I'll have to check that one out. Uh, as for me, I'm hoping to play some more piano and work on some new pieces. Uh, yeah, I actually really enjoy doing that and it's very flow inducing for me. The problem is the recording part is very intimidating and does not induce flow. So I have to uh, leverage some of my behavioral economics knowledge and create some incentives to do some more recording. Maybe buy yourself a cake with an expiry date and you only get the cake when you write the song. <laughs> what about you, Alex? How are you going to spend your leisure time? Um, I've already got it in my diary that today I'm going to be spending some time learning the piano as well. I've just bought one uh, a keyboard recently and I've been practicing uh, Requiem for a Dream using a YouTube tutorial. Good luck with that. It's a great soundtrack, a very disturbing movie, but a wonderful soundtrack. Excellent. Well, it sounds like we've got lots of exciting plans for our leisure time that are going to be a lot more flow-inducing and fulfilling than just scrolling mindlessly through social media. And we hope that you in the audience also have exciting plans and can devote more time to flow-inducing activities that you find more fulfilling over time. We'd love to hear from you. So if you've enjoyed this podcast and it's helped you recognize a way that you can spend your time more productively or more fulfillingly, we'd love to hear from you on uh, Twitter where we're HOW shift or feel free to get in touch at uh, shift at howhealthcare.com. But for now, it's bye from us and we will speak to you next time. <laughs>